0: You're listening to SermonCast, the online preaching ministry of Hope Hull United Methodist Church. Be sure to visit us at hopehullumc.org slash sermons, where you can subscribe to future episodes of SermonCast and browse our archive of past messages. Thanks for tuning in. You may not have spent much time thinking about it, but there are good reasons for getting kicked out of church. You might take a minute to reflect on a few of those reasons. Today we're going to talk about one of them. And we're going to talk about one figure in particular about 500 years ago who learned the hard way that there are good reasons for getting kicked out of church. He was a German monk named Martin Luther. Many of you will have heard of Luther because he's associated with the Protestant Reformation. In fact, just in a couple of weeks We'll be coming up on Reformation Day and many will remember uh, how Martin Luther had nailed 95 claims or theses against the Roman Catholic Church about the abuses of the Roman Catholic Church on a door uh, at the church at Wittenberg. That happened in 1517. A few years later, in 1521, January, Luther was literally kicked out. He was excommunicated by the Pope because he objected to some of the abuses that existed in medieval Roman Catholicism. We're grateful that the Catholic Church today has corrected many of those abuses, but in that day, 500 years ago, they were there, they were solid, and it was a line that was held In medieval Catholicism. Luther centered in particularly on the question of indulgences. Indulgences were something you could purchase or perhaps earn through different practices, sometimes even by paying money. And the reason you would want to do that is because it would get you or a loved one in the afterlife into the presence of god more quickly than you might have otherwise gotten there so one of the doctrines that is present in roman catholicism that has not been prominent in protestantism is that of purgatory and the idea is believers after they die need to be purged of their sin because very few people are actually perfect when they die and scripture says that without holiness no one will see the lord and so The argument goes that that happens in between, after death, oftentimes for believers. And for some people, it's a much longer process than others. Don't look around. (laughs) But we can begin to imagine those sorts of things and those sort of characters. Well, the Pope came along and said, Hey, you know, we need to fund this cathedral. We've got a capital campaign that we need to have. So let's sell some indulgences. And if you pay the right amount you or your loved one can get out of purgatory into heaven more quickly. Sounds like a pretty good capital strategy, doesn't it? You can raise a lot of money that way, getting people into heaven more quickly. And Luther saw this and began to realize, and there are were, there were many other things going on here, but this is one of the things he latched onto, one of the things he objected to, and the thing he realized is that if you can produce something, if you can like, write a check and speed your process into the presence of God, there's a problem there. Amen? (laughs) Obviously, right away, one class of people, those who have money, are advantaged over those who don't. And we certainly wouldn't want to say that access to the presence of God depends on your social status, would we? And so Luther begins writing, and if you've ever read anything, you know he's quite an... (laughs) enthusiastic writer. There's actually a, you can Google uh, the Martin Luther insult generator because he really liked to insult people in his writings. If you're into really hairy insults, Luther is your guy. So you can Google this and go in there and it'll just sort of randomly pull things. He actually wrote about the Pope and other people that he didn't like and like, just prepare yourself. It's serious stuff. But it's fun and kind of entertaining and you wouldn't want to be on the receiving end of that in the 16th century. So Luther began to go back to the scriptures and he began to read them with fresh eyes and he read them in light of his own struggle. He, he understood that he couldn't atone for his own sin and no matter how many different acts of penance he did or how much he prayed or no matter how many times he confessed and attempted to somehow get himself right with God. And he understood that no matter how much you paid, that didn't speed your access into the presence of God. And he came back to the scriptures and he read them with fresh eyes and it began to become clear to him that the access to the presence of God, and it will surprise you that this had to become clear to him, the access to the presence of God, right standing with God, favor with God, forgiveness from God, all depends exclusively and solely on his gift of grace in Jesus. Now, we take that for granted most of the time, don't we? It has not always been that that way. It has not always been that way. But 500 years ago, the church reclaimed this. Luther was given the opportunity to repent (laughs) and recant. Don't go around here talking about being saved by grace through faith, and not with the attendant acts of penance and works. And he stood his ground, and eventually he was excommunicated, kicked out of the church. So there are good reasons for getting kicked out of the church. Today, we're looking at one of the central texts that prompted luther's reflection and we'll find out in a little while was really crucial for the launch of the methodist movement because it was crucial for luther and as we come to this text we will begin to discover what luther discovered not that god is just this god of wrath who must be appeased by praying the right prayer or giving the right amount of money but that god is deeply, deeply, deeply gracious to us and His grace is embodied in the person of Jesus. And that's articulated in the Bible with this language of justification. Now we're going to get into that in a minute. It's not as bad as it sounds or as hard as it sounds. The thing to really catch, And the thing to hold on to as we kind of work through the weeds and deal with some of the stuff in Scripture is that in the end, this doctrine is a great comfort to us. Because if Jesus Christ justifies you, then your sin cannot condemn you. If Jesus justifies you, if He says justified over you, then every sin, no matter how great or how small or how many, it doesn't condemn you. And many of us walk with condemnation. We're not always honest about it. We don't always fess up about it. But we know how we've hurt people, don't we? And we know how We've caused pain, and we know how we've held God at arm's length at times, or even turned our back, and we know how we've resisted his plan for us or his calling in our lives, and we kind of hold that inside, and we're not going to show up on Sunday morning and say, hey, you know, (laughs) I'm really resisting God right now, but sometimes in hidden ways, we carry that, don't we? Sometimes in hidden ways, we carry that and we experience condemnation, and justification by faith wants to come, Jesus wants to come to us and say, I don't hold your sin against you. Won't you come into the fullness of my forgiveness in my life? If Christ justifies you, sin doesn't condemn you. We're going to unpack that. We're going to unpack it in a series of four questions. First question why do we need to be justified? Why do we need this? When we talk about justification by faith, we're talking about God's verdict in our lives. We're talking about the fact that we come into the world guilty. We come into the world sinners. Nobody starts outright with God. No one. We need him to say over us, you're in the right. Your sins are forgiven. You are justified. Scripture has plenty for us when it comes to our need. One of the most well-known verses in the whole Bible is Romans three twenty-three. And we remember that the most well-known ones are the ones we're most likely just to kind of speed through because we think we know what they're about. We don't want to take these for granted. But Romans 3.23 declares, maybe you can just say it to yourself with me, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now again, we speed through that, and we kind of take it for granted, but this idea of falling short of the glory of God is worth reflecting on for a few moments. It only really comes into focus for us if we go back and put this in the context of the whole bible in truth and so much of the bible only makes context it makes sense in the context of the whole story but if we back up to the opening pages of scripture as we often do and we think about what god has for human beings and what it means to fall short of his purposes and his goals for human beings i mean right here at this moment The thing that God is holding out in Romans 3 that is His purpose for us or His desire for us is a participation in glory. To fall short of His glory is to fall short of His purposes for us. And so then we have to ask, what are His purposes for us? What are His purposes for the human race? Why did He create us? And the answer to that question comes in the opening passage of Scripture. In Genesis chapter 1, God creates all things and He creates human beings. We're told he creates human beings in his image. He says, let, me, let us create humankind in our image and let them have dominion or authority. And then he just gives them all this. And that parallel language, let us make them in our image, let them have authorities. Here, that kind of like starts the same way and then you get image and authority. Let, us, let them be in our image, let, us, let them have authority. Gives us a sense of the vocation. God created the world and entrusted it to the human race. Now, we haven't done very well with that, have we? Some of us don't even realize that's our job, to be stewards of the world on God's behalf. But all the way through Romans, and really all the way through the Scriptures, this language of glory is associated with the human vocation to care for and reign over and steward and be trustees of the world on God's behalf. God said, Adam, Eve, I'm giving you my image, I'm giving you authority, I'm giving you all the trees and all the animals and all the things, except the one thing, the one tree. My generosity is overflowing to you, my benevolence is unmeasured, and they took those things and they received those things. And then they stole from God. We kind of get caught up over that one tree, like, why, what's the big deal with God? Why is he so fussy about that one piece of fruit? Is it really that big of a deal? But it's a big deal if you realize God has this. It belongs to him. He's generously given everything else, millions of trees, literally. And they say, no, no, no. We will take the one thing you withheld from us for yourself. They stole from God like literally walked in and said, this belongs to God, not us, but we will take it. In that moment, humanity began to fall short of God's purposes. In that moment, humanity began to fall short of God's glory. Now here's the thing. Jesus came to restore that glory. Jesus came fully God and fully human. We kind of forget that part sometimes or we don't talk about it quite so much. We're happy with Jesus being God, but if he's fully human, I mean, we we confess it, but if we really get into the nitty gritty, and some of you have even shared this with me in conversation, like that's, like are we denigrating Jesus by putting him down here in the mess with us? Isn't it like God's supposed to be exalted and spiritual and we're just a mess and we have problems and we break and we get sick and we sin? What does it mean for Jesus to be a part of that with us? But the thing we've got to see is that Jesus doesn't, in becoming human, it doesn't denigrate his deity. In becoming human, it dignifies humanity. He takes up the human vocation. And restores what Adam lost. This is really what's, about, what, what's behind the whole thing in Matthew's gospel where Jesus is tempted in the wilderness, isn't it? Like We think, oh, that's neat. Jesus went out there and he was tempted and he didn't sin. Cool. But what was he tempted with? At the climax of that moment of temptation, the temptation was from the enemy, I'll give you all the power. I'll give you authority over all the kingdoms of the earth. Right. It was a temptation to take from the devil the thing that Adam yielded, authority on the earth. Jesus resisted it, didn't he? Faithfully. Not because he's not supposed to have authority on the earth, but because he's not supposed to get it from the devil. The easy way. He goes through the whole Gospel, and He puts up with stubborn disciples, and He deals with crowds, many of whom are opposed to Him. And He gets betrayed, and He dies on the cross, and He's raised from the dead. And what does He say after His resurrection? All authority, not only on earth, but also in heaven, have been given to Me. So Jesus gets the thing the devil offered Him, but He gets more of it. Because He perseveres through the cross. He gets it the right way. The hard way. But the point, this is crucial, the point is that Jesus, in persevering through temptation, through His ministry, through the cross, the resurrection, receives authority over all things. Like That's the Great Commission. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to who? Jesus. So the thing that Adam yielded when he stole from God, human authority over creation, Jesus recaptures. He's the fully human being who is without sin, who's not rebelled against God, who hasn't stolen from God, who hasn't made a deal with the devil. And God gives him back the thing that humans gave up the first time. All of that is... Think of that as the substructure. The root system. When Paul says, we are falling short of the glory of God, he's talking about the human vocation to reign over the creation and how Jesus has recaptured it and how Jesus wants to give it to us. Why do we need to be justified? Because without Jesus declaring, your sins are forgiven, you're righteous in my sight, we cannot participate in the human vocation to steward the entire creation with Jesus for God. Does that sound like a big deal to you? I mean, you think it's tough to manage your home. (laughs) Your home is training ground for managing the cosmos, we are told in Romans chapter 4. God promised Abraham that his family would inherit the world. The Greek word is cosmos, like all of it. Like we struggle to like, manage work and kids and entertainment and you know when baseball season comes around and there's a tournament and there's all the stuff and there's all the things and I'm stressing out and how am I even going to begin to live into my glory to oversee creation with the church in Christ? Like, but all of those things are very small compared to the vocation God has for His people. Christ has been given lordship over all things, and his desire in his glory is to share it with all of us. That's why Paul says in Romans 8, We suffer with him so that we may be glorified with him, raised with him to rule over all things, not as tyrants but as loving children of God, brothers and sisters of Christ. Kind of a big deal, and you can't live into that. You can't get into that apart from the doctrine of justification by faith. And Sometimes, friends, I mean, we kind of truncate this. We talk about, I need to get my sins forgiven so I can go to heaven, and that's fine, and that's true, and you do need your sins forgiven if you're going to go and be with God. But that's only the tip of the iceberg for Paul. Paul desires to see the church step into the vocation that Adam yielded, that he abandoned, that he sinned his way out of. So yes, you have to have your sins forgiven. Yes, we need to be justified. But it's not just so that me and my individual self can have a personal Savior in Jesus. Yes, that's important. But the goal is living into the glory. And the word glory in Romans means resurrection and rule. And yes, we are all falling short of that, aren't we? For now. Jesus' desire is to take everything he's got, his resurrection and his authority, and share it with his people. And that's where this whole thing is going. That's where the whole thing is going. So all have sinned. All come into the world broken. All have forsaken the vocation to be God's representatives and stewards of the the world. All. Falling short of the glory. So we need Jesus to forgive us and bring us to himself and make us right with him so that we can attain that glory and live into it so we've talked about why we need it we've talked a little bit about what it is but our second question is going to dig more deeply into what is justification you've probably figured out already that it's kind of got a courtroom feel to it we've talked about guilt and forgiveness guilt and not guilt and not being not guilty the background to all this comes in the old testament with the way that the hebrew people administered their courts I'm not going to ask how many of you have had to go to court. You can keep that to yourself for now. But if you want to learn about the Hebrew court, it's in Deuteronomy chapter 25. And it's a lot different from the way we do court. So Deuteronomy 25 verse 1, we are told, suppose two persons have a dispute. You ever had a dispute? They enter into litigation. Maybe you've been in litigation. And the judge decides between them. So we've got a courtroom scene here. This is like ancient world you know, pick your favorite judge on TV or something and fill in the blank. Is Judge Judy still a thing? I don't watch a lot of TV, so that's the only one whose name I actually know. Two persons have a dispute. They enter into litigation. The judge decides between them, declaring one to be in the right, the other to be in the wrong. So here's what happens. Notice that if, like, there's only three parties in the courtroom, right? There's the judge. There's the accused. And there's the accuser, and so maybe somebody's accused of having a hole in their fence, and one of their bulls escapes and gores one of the livestock in the others on the, in their neighbor's fence, and so they come along and they make the accusation. Here's what Abraham's bull got out and killed some of my animals, and I want recompense. There's laws about that sort of thing, so the judge would consult. Listen to the cases, and maybe Abraham says, no, 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 that's not how it went. I fixed that hole, and something else happened. And the judge would weigh the case. Who has the better? Maybe somebody's got a witness. There's no jury. There's no bailiff. None of that. Judge, accused, accuser, maybe some witnesses. Whoever the judge decides is in the right will experience this you are justified. The judge will decide between them, deciding which one is in the right. The one that's in the right is justified, right? The the claim, whether it's the accusation or the defense, is considered justified. It's a justified accusation. It's, It's right. And so Paul, being a Hebrew of Hebrews, draws on that to consider the way that human beings are guilty before God. Like, we stand in the divine courtroom, and there's no jury. It's just God, and there's us. And we're guilty. And the verdict is against us. And we need someone to intervene so that the divine court, the divine judge, can declare over us, justified. You're in the right. But that's a real problem for us, isn't it? Why? Because we're not in the right! <laughs> because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, because we've lied, because we've cheated, because we've hurt, because we've rebelled, because we have been selfish, we have sought our own interests. Because every person at one point or another, like it or not, admit it or not, has stumbled transgressed that's a harder case to make now than it was even 20 years ago much harder case than it was 50 years ago just 50 years ago we still lived in a culture in north america where people generally like thought about truth and not truth right and wrong but we've come a long way in the last few decades, and there are a lot of folks out there now, maybe you're one of them, maybe you have lived in this world where you know you say things like, well, you know, it may be right for you, but something else is right for me. And so communicating the reality that we all somehow are wrong before God is a lot harder now than it was just a few decades ago because our culture has given up generally on the notion that there is a right and a wrong. Lots of things could be right for you. Other things could be right for me, and it doesn't matter if there's a contradiction there. And the church has got to figure out wise, winsome, clear ways to talk about how we have fallen short of God's glory. I think that story we told about Adam and Jesus and coming into our human vocation to reign over all things could be helpful in that. Because it doesn't give us a strategy of, well, I've just got to convince this person they're a sinner. What if we could convince people with the beauty of God's purposes for human beings to be his representatives? There's no argument against beauty. And if we have a full-orbed understanding of God's purposes for us in this world, we're in a much better place to talk about how we fail to live into those purposes. We start with beauty instead of with, you dirty sinner, we're in a very much better position to be able to actually have a conversation with people in a world where there's very little that's actually right or wrong. Here's God's purpose for you. He wants you to live into the beauty of His image. He wants you to be His representative. He wants you to care for everything He's made, and He wants you to fill the world with His beauty. Don't you want to fill the world with God's beauty? What's stopping us? Hard hearts, transgressions. It's hard for transgressors to fill the world with God's beauty. And so we need Jesus to step into that courtroom and say, Yes, the verdict against that person is there, and they're like they're sinners, but I will take the consequences on myself. That's where we get to Romans 4. We talk about our third question. How are we justified? So we talk about why we need it, what it is. We need it because we're not living into God's best. We need it because we've betrayed the human vocation. What is it? It's the the verdict of God's courtroom. So how do we get the you're in the right verdict? And that's where we get in Romans 4. Paul talks about Abraham... We didn't work like an hourly wage earner to get anything from God. Like if you go put, punch the clock, you, they owe you something, right? You clock in, you clock out, you get your paycheck. God says, or, or, Abraham, or Paul says, third time's a charm with the name on this thing, right? Paul says, we don't relate to God like an employer. We don't work for Him. We don't punch a clock so that He does something for us that, it, we must, that He must do to be right. That's not how we relate to God. Abraham is the model. Before he ever obeyed God, before he even knew about God, God gave him a covenant. said, you're, like, you're mine. And Abraham trusted God. It doesn't mean he did something to earn God's favor. It doesn't mean that he, he was part of a particular group that that God loves it means that he says to God I can't do it specifically he can't give himself a child because he's way too old and his wife is way too old and like they don't have a kid and so God says I'm going to give you a family and I'm going to use your family to bless the whole world and Abraham's like I'm not in control of that obviously So I'm going to trust you to keep your promise. I'm going to trust you to do something I can't do. Namely, have a baby. and Bless the world through the family. That moment where Abraham says, I can't, but you can, that's faith. The moment where Abraham says, I can't, but God can, that's faith. Faith is not all right, I'm going to believe hard enough so Jesus will love me. Faith is not the thing you see on the prosperity preachers where if you believe hard enough, you'll get healed. Or the reason you have this problem in your life is because you don't have enough faith. We can't turn faith into a work. We can't sort of say, hey, God, look at all my faith. Why haven't you done this for me? That's, that's not how we relate to God. Faith is not saying, I've got enough, so you do something for me. Faith is saying, I can't, so you have to hard for us to say, I can't sometimes, amen? Because we're Americans. We pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps. You work hard. You make a living. You be faithful. You do what you're supposed to do. It's hard for us to ask for help, because if we ask for help, it shows weakness, right? This may be more of an issue for the guys than the gals, Some of the gals are saying no. Okay, so we're on even territory here. Works for me. I know for me, it's very hard to ask for help sometimes. I'm a man. I'm supposed to be able to do it. Right, guys? Faith is saying to Jesus, I can't. I don't have what it takes. I don't have the resources. I don't have the smarts. I don't have the power I don't have anything I need you and when that happens in that moment there are two things that happen Paul's word for this is reckoning kind of in the accounting sense right where you kind of pull out your inflows and your outflows and you reconcile and get it all uh, get it all even on one level God does not reckon our sin against us. This is chapter 4, verse 8. Blessed, the psalm says, is the one against whom the Lord will not reckon sin. So whatever there is against us in the courtroom, remember judge, defendant, accuser, whatever is against us, whatever accusations have been made, the first thing God does is He doesn't count it against us. The first thing he does is he does not count it against us. The second thing he does is he reckons or accounts righteousness to us. That's up in verse 6. Verse 5. To the one who without works trusts. There's that word, trust, faith. Same word in Greek. Says to Jesus, I can't, but you can't. I'm in this court. I'm guilty. I'm a mess. I don't have the power to get myself out of here clean. I can't. You can. To the one who trusts him, who justifies the ungodly, right? Paul's got all of this right. We've talked about being ungodly. We've talked about justification as the verdict in the courtroom. To the one who trusts him, who justifies the ungodly, all the ungodly in the house. Let me see your hands. That's everybody. Get them up. Nobody gets to like skip out on this. We're all here. I just want to make sure you're awake. It's not quite 9.30 yet. The one who without works trusts him has faith in Him who says, I can't get myself out of this mess I'm in. God does not reckon His sin and instead reckons righteousness. He goes to that accounting ledger and takes the debt out and puts His capital in. I'm not going to reckon this debt or what you owe to you. Someone else is going to cover it for you. So there's two things, the non-reckoning of sin and the positive reckoning of righteousness. Now you say, where's that come from? You get three choices, (laughs) and the last two don't count. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. I was reflecting as I thought about this text, this Charles Wesley M. and can it be, There's a moment where Wesley says in the hymn, all in Him, all in Jesus, is mine. Because remember, if Jesus takes hold of us, if Jesus takes us to Himself, if He brings us into His covenant, everything that is His, He shares it with us. That's why Paul says, In Romans 8, if he doesn't withhold his own son, how will he withhold anything else? There is nothing in the world that God withholds from his beloved daughters and sons. Nothing he withholds from you. Sometimes, sometimes I withhold things from my kids. You probably do too, because we want to teach them a lesson. you got to learn something dad can I know I'm trying to get better at saying yes because our heavenly father withholds nothing from us all in him is mine all in Jesus is ours how if he did not spare his own son how will he withhold any good thing from those he loves the Heavenly Father comes to you and says, I'm going to give you everything instead of reckoning your transgression. And you're guilty, make no mistake, all of sin, but instead of imputing or reckoning your transgression against you, I'm going to join you to Jesus through faith, and all that belongs to Him is shared with you. All of it. His righteousness, His justification. His resurrection, His riches, His power, His reign, His rule, His beauty, His holiness. Just start naming all of the things that Jesus has, and remember that God desires to withhold nothing from you. Now you know why Luther was kicked out of the church for this. All in Him is mine. If Jesus justifies you, your sin can't condemn you. Because Jesus is stronger. Jesus is more. Jesus is more. In His grace, His cross, His death, His atonement, that moment where He goes to the cross and He bleeds... Because the wages of sin is what? Death. The moment where He bleeds. All of that He accomplishes. He looks to us in our desperate state as fallen, sinful, broken, hopeless, dark souls. And says, you're in the right. When you look at the man on the cross, when you consider the nails in his hands and the thorns in his face and the whip on his back, you remember those words. All in him is mine. The fourth question is what are the benefits? But I think we've already answered that, haven't we? My hope, my prayer, as we reflect on this text together, is that you feel loved. The notion that God, the offended party, that's not mince words. My sin is an offense to God. God, the offended party, would show up in Jesus after being patient. We haven't talked, we haven't, there's so much in this text, we've only done a few a little bits of it, believe it or not. The forbearance of God. He's been patient with us. He passed over sins previously committed until he could demonstrate his absolute righteousness. He's always going to do what is right, he's going to redeem his people. And he shows up in Jesus. That's not someone different from God, it's God in the flesh. And in Jesus, God takes the consequences of God's judgment on God's self in our place. That's love. The one who wrote the law takes the penalty of the law on himself. So you can get off scot-free. That's love. That's why Luther was willing to get kicked out. And that's what John Wesley experienced a couple hundred years later. We've talked before about Aldersgate Street. He didn't want to go that night. He wanted to do something else. You ever been in that situation? I don't want to go to church. That's usually the time you need to get up and go. Wesley didn't want to go to church. He said, I went to this society meeting, this church gathering on Aldersgate Street. He says, but it was, I was Unwillingly. Somebody's dragging him in. So, Wesley, get on over here. We're going to church. They show up and somebody's reading something Martin Luther wrote. Now, this part cracks me up because I've read a lot of commentaries. I usually skip the preface a lot of times and just kind of go find the text that I'm preaching on and I read the commentary. Right? People write these books, entire commentaries on Romans or Philippians or whatever. Well, Wesley shows up at this church meeting on Aldersgate Street, and somebody's reading a commentary. Now, I'm pretty sure if I pulled out a commentary up here and just started reading it, y'all would probably leave because they're not always terribly exciting. Or, you know, it's hit or miss sometimes. I can point, to, point you to some good ones. But, but if you know commentaries, it's humorous. Wesley shows up, and someone is straight up has a commentary on Romans. They're not preaching, they're just reading a commentary. And they're not reading just the commentary they're reading the preface to the commentary you know the little bit of the start that we usually skip and wesley goes in and he says i went in the evening unwillingly not just unwillingly but very unwillingly to a society in aldersgate street where one was reading luther's preface to romans they're not even reading romans they're not even reading the commentary on romans they're reading the preface to the commentary on Romans and here's what Wesley says about a quarter till 9 it's late you're at church at 8:45 you've probably been there longer than you need to be or maybe just long enough about a quarter before 9 while he was describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ this this thing where when we believe in Jesus the the, the he takes our sin and gives us his favor the non-reckoning of sin, the reckoning of righteousness, this you're in the right. He's describing this change that happens, this, this renewal, this, this, this reconciliation. He's describing that. He says, quarter before nine, whoever's reading, we don't even know this guy's name, just he, was describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ. Wesley says, and you know these words, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust Christ, Christ alone for salvation. And, as, and an assurance was given me that He had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. In that moment, brothers and sis- sisters, Wesley felt loved. In that moment, he felt loved like never before. In that moment, he felt loved because in that moment, Jesus and nobody but Jesus took his sin away. In that moment, Jesus and nobody but Jesus shared everything with him, including assurance that he was loved. Here's what I want you to take away. Justification by faith means Jesus loves you. justification by faith means Jesus loves you. You don't die for people you don't care about. And you don't bleed for people you don't love. Jesus loves you question then becomes what is standing in the way of experiencing the perfection of his love? What attitude in us that says I got this, I don't need help. What attitude in us that says I'm not going to confess that. Do you know what they would say about me? What hard-heartedness do we hold? What unrepentance, what faith are we withholding? And where do we need to say to Jesus, I can't, but you can. I can't. Jesus can. You've been listening to SermonCast